It was the veteran pastor, Stuart Briscoe, who uh, told uh, once in a conversation he had with a church member shortly after he'd arrived at the church that he pastored, uh, a, um, a church member came, came up to him and said, I hope you're not going to be like our old pastor. He was always talking about money. And Stuart Briscoe replied, perhaps he was just teaching the Bible. Because the truth is that actually from beginning to end in the Bible, the Bible presents money and possessions as an important spiritual issue. Jesus himself spoke about money more often than almost anything else. In the book of Acts, it is plain that financial honesty and uh, generosity were absolutely central to the life of the early church and all the longer New Testament letters include a section speaking about money. So despite my, to be honest, British reticence to speak about money, my reading of scripture tells me that I need make no apology for devoting a whole morning to us, a whole sermon to money. Actually, in Maudlin Road Church, just if you've not been here for long, um, we don't do that sort of thing very often. I get more complaints that we don't mention money enough than that we mention it too much. Let me just introduce um, uh, what I'm going to say by answering a couple of uh, questions which uh, may help clarify. First question is this. How did the early church spend its money? They donated money, in the simplest terms, for three great purposes. Um, First of all, they gave money for the relief of the poor, especially the relief of Christians who were poor. Alongside preaching the Gospel, if you uh, um, follow the uh, Apostle Paul, you find him spending a remarkable amount of time travelling around, collecting money to uh, um, give to the poor Christians in Jerusalem who had fallen on, uh, on hard times. There were various reasons for that, no doubt, partly um, um, to, to, to bind the Jewish and Gentile churches together but also, there was just the very clear agenda that Christians need to be feel responsible for the poor. Today's world is uh, very different from Paul's world. Um, in our church budget, for instance, we uh, do have money set aside to help people in financial difficulty. Um, a few years ago as well, we set up a parallel charitable trust called the Comfort Trust, which you'll hear about in a, uh, next week, I think, um, uh, which is devoted to um, helping people with their, with their basic social needs and we're hoping that that will expand over time. In addition, in the church, uh, we occasionally have special Sundays. Last Sunday was one, our Harvest Sunday, where the, the, the whole of your donations go to helping people in a poorer part of the world. That time it was the Better Life Christian Association in, uh, in Egypt. We, we do have, as part of our budget and part of our commitment corporately, the commitment to give to the poor. But actually, in today's world, there are also other organisations. Tear Fund, for instance. We don't expect uh, every bit of your giving to go to, uh, uh, into the church's coffer, you, you may well want to express that concern for the poor 
in wider ways. You know, secular charities even know that the Christians are the best givers even to the non-Christian charities. Christians are generous to the poor. Secondly, the New Testament um, says that Christians should give for world mission. Paul himself was a missionary and sought support. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, he, um, he mentions that he's got, got support as well from the, uh, the, the, uh, from the Christians in Corinth. And we, as a church, give a proportion of our income to world mission. We have a, a number of missionaries that we, we support and we'll be telling you more about that over the coming weeks, I, I'm sure. We've steadily seen our, our support and our involvement for world mission growing and we long as a church to give more and more to support world mission. But we also recognise, particularly as people move around, you may gain uh, a contact and an interest in someone who's involved in world mission entirely independently of Magdalen Road Church. Again, we don't expect all of your giving um, to world mission to come through the church. Some, yes, not necessarily all. First century Christians were committed to world mission. And then the third direction where Christian money was spent, and by no means the least, was to support local church ministry. In the first century, as uh, churches became established, they appointed leaders, elders, overseers. And uh, some of those churches, as uh, uh, as they consolidated and grew began to invest in full-time elders, pastor teachers, and uh, they needed to financially support those, uh, those leaders. 1 Timothy 5.17, for instance, Paul says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And double honour there means both the honour of respect and the honour of remuneration. (coughs) The local church is the heart of God's purpose for his world. And churches, local churches, beyond a certain size, need full-time, dedicated leaders and workers who need to be supported financially. The bulk of our our money um, uh, in the church goes on local church ministry, particularly the wages of uh, the three staff in the church. Dave Trenchard, who was just leading the service, Richard Brewster, who told you about youth youth work, and uh, me. Why, Why three staff? Our vision, in a nutshell, um, is that we are called by God to delight in him and dis- display the glory of Jesus. And you could suggest that um, we can do that simply by having one inspirational figure at the, at the front who will, who will help us to uh, delight in God and to know him more fully and then everything else will just happen uh, naturally by osmosis. But um, there are at least two reasons why in uh, the 21st century 
That's just not possible even in a church uh, of relatively modest proportions like ours. One of those comes actually from another aspect of our vision statement. We have uh, said quite self-consciously in our vision statement that we are called to have a multi-dimensional ministry. We've encapsulated it by the phrase through word, service and community. Our life together, our witness to the world is about speaking but it is also about more more than that. It is about serving both as individuals but also in some situations serving the world corporately and it is about loving, not least living as as a public community of love. And in order to fulfil that vision as a, as a local church, there is unavoidable complexity. We're committed, for instance, to promoting our community life together, mainly through small groups. If you're not involved in a small home group, talk to Richard Brewster or, or, or to me. Um, we want to help people grow through Christ-like relationships. That takes organisation. We're committed to friendship building events between, in which our local church community um, reaches out simply in friendship to the wider world and the wine tasting that you've just heard about would be, uh, uh, would be typical of that. A harvest barbecue, um, uh, real life film nights uh, are also examples of that. We're committed to reaching all sorts of people. The youth work takes uh, time and investment for, for instance. We're committed to our building being used for, to, not only for our own purposes but also to bless the wider community and that we allow other things to, uh, to happen. And that is hard work. Which is the second reason why staff are essential. There is complexity in our life together, in our ministry. And people just don't have the spare time to run all of those events, all of those things. Actually, 50 years ago, you probably would have had a high um, proportion of people who weren't working full-time, and we could have done. But uh, times have changed. In God's goodness, though, the amount of disposable income that people have has increased as well. And so the obvious solution, the solution that churches up and down uh, the Western world um, uh, have found themselves having to opt for is just to have a slightly larger number of staff, a small staff team, which is what we've we've gone for. So that's where we are today. The Lord actually has given us a deeply exciting vision. He calls us to know him, to serve him, to worship him, to delight in him. And he promises that we will display the glory of Jesus as we delight in God. That display needs to have some shape, to have some organisation about it. We started to see the fulfilment of that, um, that, that vision over the last few uh, years and, uh, uh, and months. 
and uh, we took the decision just over a year ago, as you know, to employ Dave Trenchard full-time, which we knew would put a financial stress uh, on us as a church at about this time, as um, it has done. But we did it because we were committed to being a church that reaches out to the world around through word, service and community. What do we need to learn from Scripture then as we face this real challenge, exciting challenge but significant challenge at this stage of our life as a church? We could have chosen any number of passages. I said to you, all the major New Testament letters speak about money. But I thought since our main series this autumn is uh, 1 Corinthians, that we'd just look uh, a little bit ahead at at 1 Corinthians 16 to try to get a flavour of what the Apostle Paul expects from this church in Corinth. In order to understand 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 to 4, we must just for a moment glance back at uh, the end of 1 Corinthians 15. The end of that chapter, Paul calls them to be uh, rock-solid believers. (coughs) Therefore, he says, verse 58, my dear brothers, Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm, he says. That, that phrase indicates they are to be people of absolute, solid, unshakable conviction. Secure, uh, completely, as we saw last week from um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in the confidence that if Christ died for our sins, we need nothing else. There is now neither, as Paul says elsewhere, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation which can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he died for us, he paid for every sin of ours and therefore we are absolutely secure with God. And, Paul says, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he's just uh, completed saying, we are to be rock solid believers because we are absolutely secure in the hope that is set before us. His conviction is that our present troubles are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory, resurrection life that we have set before us. Our present pleasures will one day day be elevated to an unimaginably rich, solid, lasting resurrection life in which we actually rise from the grave and live in the presence of God amongst his people, enjoying his creation forever with no sin and no sorrow and no dying. We are assured of it, says the Apostle. Because nothing will separate us from from, from the love of God, not even death. 
So he says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. You can be rock solid believers. As the truths of the gospel penetrate us, they will make us into unconquerable people. We may experience trials and griefs. We may be sorely tested in all sorts of ways. But we will be as unconquerable as a Norman castle against bows and arrows. As a, as a basalt cliff against the waves. Nothing will move us. He expects us too to be productive people. Did you see that in verse 58? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Literally, he says, always be overflowing in the work of the Lord. In other words, a solid, immovable Christian is also someone who, who just overflows in good works. Motivated in particular. You see, he says, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. God promises that every good work that we do in faith is remembered, counts in eternity. It is used by him for his glory now in this world. It is recorded by him in his books and one day it will be read out and one day God himself will say, well done. Every private battle with sin that we win, every uh, um, uh, uh, unseen act of kindness, every selfless act, it is all seen and recorded. And not a single one thing is ever in vain. It's in that context then that Paul starts to talk about money. He says, I'm looking for you to be rock solid believers absolutely firm, steadily committed to doing all sorts of good things because that's what the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and, death and resurrection creates in people. And part of that will be that you'll be rock solid givers. Financial generosity, says the Bible, is a spiritual matter. Paul uh, expects financial giving to be uh, a universal practice in all churches. Verse 1, about the collection for God's people, he says, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. He's not asking these Corinthian Christians to do anything other than that he's asked all sorts of other churches, no doubt, not least uh, the, the, the Galatian churches. There are some things in the Christian life which are culturally determined and some people will do and some people won't do. Some people will raise their hands in worship. I'm delighted that more people are doing that. Some people won't. Some people, some people might even dance in worship. My children tell me that I do, which is a great embarrassment to them. Um, 
but I don't do it intentionally. All sorts of things are optional. But Christian giving is not. Every church throughout the world is expected to practice financial generosity. But uh, this <coughs> universal practice is not a tax, it is voluntary. Paul carefully uses a word, uh, the word we've translated collection here to indicate that it, 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 it's not a levy, it's a voluntary gift. In, in this church here, we don't pass around a collection bag on Sunday mornings. And we do that for a specific purpose. We don't want anyone, particularly someone not used to church, to get the impression that um, in order to come to church they're going to be charged. I remember um, an elderly couple who got converted uh, a number of years ago in the last church that I was in. Um, And uh, she was really spiritually hungry and got invited along to a home group a small group, just to study the Bible. And um, her husband was deeply suspicious. He drove his wife to um, this home group. Um, But as she got out of the car, he said, whatever you do, don't buy anything. (laughs) Because people think we're just about raising money. And money is an important issue. But it is voluntary. We make sure that I do not know, not, no, no more than the minimal number of people, know what any of you gives. And we certainly don't judge people according to how much they give. It is simply a voluntary gift between you and God. But, says the Apostle, it should be regular. Did you notice that in verse uh, 2 when Dave read it to us? On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul knows that um, (coughs) ad hoc, occasional collections are fraught with all sorts of problems. For a start, people suddenly feel massively pressurised but I don't want you to feel massively pressurised this morning. I'm not, um, uh, we're not bringing this, this, this issue to put everybody on a, uh, on a guilt trip. Simply that just occasionally, particularly at the moment, we need to remind ourselves of, uh, uh, of responsibilities. Paul doesn't want, and I don't want, there to be suddenly a bursting um, uh, collection box this week or next week. No, he says, that's not the way you should give as Christians. You should give regularly. So that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Church treasurers, you know, Thank God for 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. 
Because it's an absolute nightmare um, running the finances of an organisation if the giving is, is lumpy, if people just sort of occasionally give a big chunk and then forget for a long time. There is deep wisdom in Scripture. Regular, committed giving is the way that regular, committed ministry can be financed. Don't go on a guilt trip this week and forget next. Think carefully. What is my regular, committed giving? And giving, says the Apostle, should be worshipful. It's very interesting that he asked them to set aside money on the first day of the week. It wasn't payday the first day of the week. He's not saying when you get your wage packet, take out a certain, a certain amount. Um, no, it, it, uh, it's almost certainly he suggests the first day of the week because this was the day of the week when Christians were gradually starting to make, which they were gradually starting to make their regular main day of gathering for worship. It was Sunday. And he says on Sunday, set aside an amount of money. Elsewhere, the New Testament makes it plain that giving is an act of worship. And so he seems to be suggesting here, give on your main day of gathering for worship. Now, just a few chapters earlier, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul has been quite clear that we can give all our money to the poor, all of our possessions completely. And if we lack love, it will be completely useless as worship and we will gain nothing. He is not saying that just giving somehow makes us worshipful people. But he is saying, that worshipful people will, as part of their worship, give. Give generously. Give joyfully. Give out of delight and wonder because the God of the universe gave his only Son for us. And with him will give us all things. How could giving not be part of our worship in return? And says the, the Apostle, it is a practice for all people. See that again? Each one, he says, should set aside a sum of money. He doesn't stipulate how much carefully. The NIV translates it according to their income. More literally, it's sort of according to how it has gone with or how it is going with them. In Old Testament times, there were tithes. People gave a tenth of their crops as their generous giving. But the New Testament seems to studiously avoid dwelling on Old Testament tithes. The only, only place it does uh, do so is when it's describing the punctilious but ultimately godless activities of the Pharisees. Tithes don't get a very good uh, press in the New Testament. The New Testament simply says, Give generously. Jesus commended, remember, a poor widow who gave only a mite, but it was all she had. The Apostle Paul commends the Philippians for giving out of their extreme poverty. 
And it is part of the evangelical church's glory in this country that evangelical Christians do give. You know, there are some startling statistics. One interesting one just recently, a survey showed that as well as giving far more generously than the rest of, uh, rest of the, um, the nation, um, evangelical Christians are also better off financially despite the fact that they don't earn any more money on average. That's God's economy for you, isn't it? He loves to bless generous givers. My non-Christian friends and family are absolutely gobsmacked when they see your generosity here. They conclude that you must be incredibly wealthy. I have to tell them that we're not a poor congregation, certainly, but we only have about the average income for the south of England or, or possibly slightly less. But what makes you generous is that you believe in what we're doing together here. You believe the gospel. You believe it should be spread to the peoples of East Oxford and the world. And you've committed yourself to giving to support that. They really have nothing to say in response. They're amazed. If the giving's for all people, isn't that a bit extreme? What about students, for instance? Students often ask me whether they should uh, give because uh, surely it only increases their student loan and it'll have to be paid back in the, in the long run. And my, my answer is that I think you should give. I certainly did when I was a student, even though I ran on an overdraft. Not much, perhaps. The Apostle Paul is clear. We just um, are to give according to our income. But he also is clear each one should set aside an amount. It is a godly practice. If you're worried about your student loan, why not actually set about living just a little more frugally and giving out of that? And then your student loan will be no bigger than it might have been. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm only going to be here for a very short time. Frankly, I'm just passing through and um, I can take from this congregation, but I can't give to it. Let, let, let me tell you, you're, you're benefiting from the giving of people who are no longer here, who were, many of them were here for a relatively short time as well and have moved on. They, they um, um, uh, invested in the life of this church so that you can enjoy what we have here now. We live in an extremely transient city, um, um, five years hence, more than half of you will be worshipping elsewhere. But we can, together, build a long-term, permanent, God-glorifying, world-influencing congregation through transient people as we commit to this congregation for however long the Lord gives us here. A friend of mine who moved a lot 
said uh, the one bit of advice that he had learned was always to live every, in every place as if he was going to be there forever. Because he said if you don't do that, you're just always looking over the horizon to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And you're never glorifying God in the here and now. Paul is quite unabashed and therefore we as a church need to be quite unabashed at saying each one should set aside an amount according to his income. But finally Paul makes it very clear as well that this money must be administered accountably. Verse 3 Then when I arrive, he says, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. The men you approve, he says. He's not just expecting them to trust him. He's saying you entrust your money to people whom you trust. And as I said earlier, um, uh, we are facing significant challenges financially as a church and we as leaders want to be entirely accountable to you. We set a budget together as a church congregation. We have a commitment which we've stumbled on slightly as we've actually changed the way that we run the finances because the finances have got to a size when Andrew Sadler has had to change the system of managing the finances to a more um, professional system for a medium-sized church. And that's meant there's been a slight hiatus, actually, in our communication of our financial situation to you. We do apologise for that. But we now have the new, uh, better system running properly and we have communicated and will continue to communicate to you as clearly as we can the financial situation because we want to be accountable. The budget and the church finances are always open to, uh, uh, to any church member. Um, uh, I hope that in time, actually um, we don't at the moment, but that we will soon formally, as a church, approve our church treasurer. You approve the elders who take final responsibility for the elders, for the money, but uh, it seems to me that verse 3 here makes a strong case for those who are responsible for managing money being people you approve. We ask for your approval in retrospect at the moment, but uh, it may be better to ask for your approval in prospect for those who manage the finance. All of those principles then, the Apostle Paul sets before this church. And he says, my aim is that you should be rock solid believers who are rock solid givers so that the ministry of the word of God and the gospel can spread throughout the world. I have to say, I am so proud of you, uh, of what's happened over the last, uh, uh, last few years and how generously you've given. A number of us here remember how scary it was 
to employ uh, Richard Brewster as the second staff member on, a, on, it has to be said, a minimal wage as a, uh, um, a, as a youth worker. And the Lord honoured that and the Lord prospered us through your generosity so that now we, we've, we've seen those of us who've been here for a while how much um, extra ministry we are able to do. And then we've taken on uh, Dave Trenchard as our, as our third staff member. And we knew this financial year would be tough. But I know you are committed to the ministry we are engaged in. And I know God is committed to it too. Because wherever his word is being proclaimed, wherever service and love is happening in his name, there he loves to bless. Right now it feels to me like the Lord has opened our eyes and our hearts to know him more deeply, to delight in him. This this, uh, uh, renewed vision seems to be catching people's hearts. And there are all sorts of new directions that our ministry is heading off in um, uh, with a germinal ministry amongst Muslims. Do you know we're starting a French-speaking home group almost certainly? Students are with us reasonably regularly. There are more and more international students uh, amongst us. there, There really is a mushrooming of blessing. If you go to Doorway... Um, the, uh, our, um, our open evening on uh, Tuesday evenings you will find people who have been met through the Jesus video distribution or through coming to a real life event or through uh, um, uh, uh, popping by at the barbecue all, all sorts of things have brought people in it is really exciting I can't think of anywhere else I would like to be in the world than amongst you and serving the Lord amongst you. And I am confident that that blessing that the Lord is giving us in people will be matched by blessing from your generosity. I commend it to your hearts as we serve God together.